This podcast is produced by Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. We would love to have you join us at one of our church services on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 5 o'clock p.m. Today's episode features a speech from a 2022 family conference hosted by the British Reformed Fellowship, the topic of which was union with Jesus Christ. We hope you are edified by this content. Before I begin tonight's speech, I'd like to mention a friend and a member of the BRF who would have loved to have been with here in order to give this speech tonight. I'm referring to John Perkins. Um, His wife Margaret hasn't been well and John has known for some time that he wouldn't be able to make it, but he would dearly love to have been with us this week and been presenting a paper on union with Christ's free will in the Puritans. So we've been speaking with John, hoping to get him to agree to write that up and publish that in the British Reformed Journal, because I think that'll make a nice, nice addition. The title of tonight's speech is Christ is Made Ours, Calvin on Union. Christ is Made Ours, Calvin on Union. We begin with the question, is union with Christ a significant subject for John Calvin, the 16th century French reformer? And the answer, whatever way you look at it, can only be yes. Here's a direct statement to that effect from his pen. Union with Christ is, quote, accorded by us, referring to the whole Reformation movement, not only himself, accorded by us the highest degree of importance. The second proof is the fact that Calvin presents his theology from this perspective too. Professor Engelsma has referred to this, so I'll be brief. Book 3 of his Institutes of the Christian Religion is entitled, quote, The way in which we receive the grace of Christ, what benefits come to us from it, and what effects follow. Roughly speaking, book three is about soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. And John Calvin treats soteriology, salvation, under the theme of Union with Christ. That's where he begins, and he develops that to a significant degree throughout the various chapters. And thirdly, the significance of union with Christ for John Calvin is widely recognized by all Calvin scholars of which of whom I'm aware. Here's one, Ronald Wallace from the British Isles. Quote, Calvin notes that in defining the means by which we are saved, soteriology, it is better to use the phrase in Christ rather than by Christ. For the former phrase, in Christ, has more expressiveness and force and denotes the union with Christ, which is such a necessary part of the gospel. Now, though John Calvin nowhere 
provides us with a definition of union with Christ. I'm going to quote here two of his moving descriptions of this blessed reality. Christ is made ours. That's how he begins, and that's the little phrase I'm taking for part of our title tonight. Christ is made ours. And then he explains that this union is, quote, that joining together of head and members, that indwelling of Christ in our hearts. In short, that mystical union, so that Christ, having been made ours, he keeps coming back to a phrase like that so many times, Christ having made, been made ours, makes us sharers with him in the gifts which he has been endowed. We put on Christ and are engrafted into his body because he deigns to make us one with him. Institutes 3, 11, 10. Again, Christ is not outside us, but dwells within us. Not only does he cleave to us by an indivisible bond of fellowship, but with a wonderful communion, day by day, he grows more and more into one body with us until he becomes completely one with us. Now in these two quotes and throughout his writings, John Calvin views union with Christ as both mutual and dynamic. It's a mutual union. I am in him and he is in me. We are one with him and he is one with us. Christ is made ours and we are made his, a mutual union. And it is a dynamic union. Christ, quote, grows more and more into one body with us, to quote a little bit of the previous quote. Or, to turn it around, we grow together into him. Now, what are the images that John Calvin uses to convey our union with Christ? There is what we may call arboreal or tree imagery. Roots, branches, vine, arboreal imagery. There is anatomical or body imagery. Head, body, and various bodily members. There is marital or conjugal imagery, husband and wife. Christ is made ours as our vine, as our head, as our husband. And if you ask, why am I referring to these three images of union with Christ? It's because these are the three images that the Bible uses. For union with Christ. The monks in the Middle Ages quarried especially the Song of Solomon in speaking about union with Christ. John Calvin, it's the epistles of Paul. But of the various images, 
the three that I have mentioned, which one is that most used by John Calvin? Well, marital imagery, that's the favorite of the pre-Reformation church. I believe, and I checked this with Professor Engelsma beforehand, that Herman Huxema gravitates to arboreal imagery. He talks about the vine and the branches. Continually returns to that lovely theme. In my reading, I believe that John Calvin prefers anatomical imagery. The head, the body, and the members. And in that connection, the Bible verse to which Calvin most appeals in this connection is Ephesians 5, verse 30. Quote, For we are members of his body, anatomical imagery, of his flesh, and of his bones. Now, what nouns or phrases does Calvin use to portray the truth of our union with Christ? Mystical union, in at least two places, or more commonly, union with God. Being in the Spirit, or being indwelt by the Spirit. He calls it a bond, or a fellowship, involving communion and every word is important here he refers to it as an engrafting or a joining a partaking of christ or a sharing of him a growing together or a becoming one and when you hear this you're thinking this is very similar to what we've heard so far this week because it's biblical imagery and because our two speakers understandingly stand with John Calvin, of course. Taking some of these key words together, we could summarize and say that for John Calvin, Jesus Christ is made ours in a mystical union or a bond of fellowship by engrafting so that we partake of him and grow together in him. Biblical words, biblical phrases, biblical ideas, because he was a biblical Reformation teacher. And of these terms, I believe that Calvin most often, when he treats union with Christ, speaks of it as an engrafting, or our being engrafted into Jesus. And in Calvin's writing, this engrafting into Christ, to me, surprisingly, isn't connected, with isn't connected with arboreal imagery, because when I hear of engrafting, I'm thinking John 15, we're engrafted into Christ the vine. But he speaks of our being engrafted into the body, which fits with his idea, his preference, shall we put it, of anatomical imagery. Having looked at the nouns that Calvin uses to speak of union with Christ, what about his adjectives? Here are the main ones. Supernatural, heavenly, and spiritual union. 
holy and sacred union. Blessed and wonderful, indestructible, indivisible, and indissoluble. Mysterious and incomprehensible, close and intimate. The thinking of Calvin could be summed up like this in this regard. Christ is made ours in a wonderful union that is supernatural and sacred, indestructible, incomprehensible, and intimate. And if you ask just how close is our union with Jesus Christ, I could summarize Calvin's argument in his commentary on 1 Corinthians 6. He says, in short, that there's a bond between a father and a son which is really close in the earthly sphere. But the bond between a husband and his wife is even closer. That's step two. But the spiritual marriage between Christ and his church, well, that's even more intimate. And then he goes further. He says that we are not merely one flesh with Christ, grade four, but we are even one spirit with him. Elsewhere, our reformer writes, quote, We are united with Christ more closely than our limbs with the body. You almost feel like pausing and mulling that one over. How closely am I at limbs to the body? Is that really true? That's what he says. And I think he's right. And here's another quote, this time from Colossians 1. And this, I think, is what Professor Engelsma was alluding to in part of one of his presentations. Farther, we know that there is so great a unity between Christ and his members that the name of Christ sometimes includes the whole body, as in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. For while discoursing there respecting the church, he comes at length to the conclusion that in Christ the same thing holds in the human body. Did you catch that? Christ is made ours so that, quote, sometimes the name of Christ includes the whole body of the church. As some of you who are speakers will know, one of the most painful things to have to do in a speech is toil long and hard, write a section, and this is the hardest section over which I toiled, and I discussed this with Prof. Engelsma, and then when you get to it, realize the speech is too long, listen to the flicking there, and all these pages on Andreas Osiander, the German Lutheran theologian, and his strange view of union with Christ, which I was going to define over against Calvin to sharpen it, they've all got to go, but... If anyone did, this is almost a plea, if anyone did afterwards want to ask a question about your favorite German reformer from Nuremberg, who later on moved to Königsberg, please do bring it up. We want to encourage you to raise questions about, about that afterwards in the question time. Moving swiftly on, John Calvin's biblical understanding of union with Christ comes into sharp focus if we bring in here his treatment of the rules of the Holy Spirit 
and of faith. And if you think back to the lectures we've had before, these are the questions that came up. I think Professor Heisinger was asked about this. Faith and the Holy Spirit, how do they relate to union with Christ? What then is the role, first of all, of the Holy Spirit? For Calvin, the blessed Spirit is the personal bond uniting us to Christ and he is the divine agent through whom Christ blesses us and governs us. I'm going to give you four short quotes to this effect. The first, actually, uh, Professor Heisinger quoted earlier too. Quote, The Holy Spirit is the bond by which Christ effectually unites us to himself. Again, the secret power of the Spirit is the bond of our union with Christ. Again, Christ unites himself to us by the Spirit alone. By the grace and power of the same Spirit, we are made his members to keep us under himself and in turn to possess him. So he brings in the mutual there. Fourth and final quote. It is through the secret energy of the Spirit by which we come to enjoy Christ and all his benefits. So what adjective, listed earlier, what adjective describing union with Christ flows from all this? Spiritual. Union with Christ is spiritual. And spiritual in the Bible means pertaining to the Holy Spirit. So Christ is made ours spiritually. Let me summarize for you Calvin's argument in Institutes 3, 1, 2. Jesus Christ came into the world and wrought our redemption by the Holy Spirit. Whereupon he received the Holy Spirit in all his fullness at his exaltation at God's right hand in heaven so that he gives the Holy Spirit to his elect in order to unite us with himself and bestow his blessings upon us. So Christ is made ours by the Holy Spirit who equips Christ for his work, who is given to Christ and who is given to us and brings us back to the Lord. Ronald Wallace summarizes Calvin on the role of the Holy Spirit in terms of the descent and the ascent of the same Spirit in uniting us with the Lord Jesus. Quote, In speaking of the union between Christ and his people, Calvin can speak, with reservations, of the Holy Spirit as bringing Christ down into the lives and hearts of his people. He prefers to speak of the Holy Spirit as raising men up from earth to heaven, there to dwell with Christ and there to partake of Christ. And you can look out for this when you read Calvin. You'll see that this is indeed the case. Wallace continues, Calvin can speak of the Holy Spirit as the link which binds us to Christ and also as the channel by which everything which Christ has and is, is 
derived to us. Calvin even quotes two texts from 1 John on the believer's knowledge or assurance of union with Christ coming through the Holy Spirit. Quote, We know that he abides in us. We know, that's assurance, that he abides in us, that union with Christ. We know that he abides in us. We know we have union with Christ from the Spirit whom he has given us. 1 John 3.24 Likewise, from this we know, assurance, that we abide in him and he in us, union with Christ, because he has given us of his Spirit. For Calvin, Christ is not only made ours by the Spirit, but we also know it by the Holy Spirit, which is an important point in the truth of assurance of salvation. Now, having considered Calvin on the role of the Holy Spirit in our union with Christ, what does he present as the role of faith? And here are three very short quotes out of many. Regarding union with Christ, Calvin states, quote, It is true that we obtain this by faith. Again, Christ was given us by God's generosity, generosity to be grasped and possessed by us in faith. And again, quote, As I explained in the previous book, that is book three of the Institutes, the one about soteriology, which begins with and often refers back to union with Christ, as I explained in the previous book, it is by faith in the gospel that Christ becomes ours and we are made partakers of the salvation and eternal blessedness brought by him. Institutes 4.1.1, referring back to the previous book. So Christ is made ours by faith. Let me quote Wallace again. For Calvin, faith unites man to God and makes God to dwell in man. It should be noted that the movement of faith in the laying hold of what is in heaven going up and bringing it down to earth is reciprocal, in Calvin's thought, to the movement of the Holy Spirit who brings the heavenly grace of Christ down to us in the human heart and raises our hearts up into heaven in repose of his grace. So the Spirit unites us to Christ. Faith unites us to Christ. Calvin's very clear. Both do that. The Spirit brings Christ and his grace down to us and us up to him. And faith brings Christ and his grace down to us and us up to him. But we need to distinguish. Here's one thing Calvin says regarding faith's origin. Faith itself has no other source than the Spirit. Again, faith is the principal work of the Spirit, which I take to mean faith is the principal work of the Spirit in the elect. So here's how it fits together. This Holy Spirit unites us to Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit unites us to Jesus Christ by a Spirit-wrought faith. With the Spirit giving us faith so that we believe God's word 
and trust in Jesus Christ, crucified and risen for our salvation, and so know our union with Christ, and enjoy our union with Christ. And this is how Christ is made ours by faith. We have already come a far way, a long way, though we didn't, we didn't go to Nuremberg with Andreas Oziander, but even then we've come a, a long way in treating Calvin's doctrine of union with Christ. We've seen its importance, we've described it, we've looked at the imagery for it, the nouns, the phrases, the adjectives that he used. We've seen the role of the Holy Spirit and faith in effecting this union. The Holy Spirit is the divine agent of union. Faith is the necessary means of union. But we have not yet delineated who are the parties who are united. And you might think, well, that's actually quite easy. Only there's a lot more to it than you think. Let's deal with this in theological terms. In terms of anthropology, the doctrine of man, the Christian says, I'm united to Christ and I am human. I'm not an angel. There's nobody in this room under the illusion that you're an angel. You're not. We're not dealing with Christ's relationship to angels, fallen or unfallen, in this lecture. So that means I, as a human being, both body and soul, turn it around, soul and body, both united to Jesus Christ. Calvin is very clear in this, makes this point many times. To go further... I, body and soul, am united to Jesus Christ as a sinner. I, body and soul, will be united to Jesus Christ one day as sinless. What then about the when of my union with Christ? And here we come to issues involved in Professor Heisinger's lecture. The Christian says, I was united to Jesus Christ before I was even born. And way before that, in God's eternal election, because I was chosen in him before the foundation of the world. And Calvin uses Ephesians 1 verse 4, as one would expect to make that point repeatedly. I was united in Jesus Christ in Christ's particular redemption as Professor Engelsma explained it too, 2,000 years ago, I was in him. And then, Jesus Christ was made mine definitively and by irresistible regeneration so that now I am in him and he is in me. Now the mutual comes into its own. He was made mine I was made his by irresistible regeneration in my lifetime, in the past, by the Holy Spirit, so that I enjoy and know this by faith. And if we think ahead into the future, Christ will then be made mine perf perfectly at my final glorification in the next life and in my future. Who is it who's united to Christ? In what sense is over time united to Christ? But who exactly is the one to whom I am united? 
body and soul in this world and in the next. And that brings us to Christology, the doctrine of Christ. And here, Calvin is emphatic and he works it out in various places in his institutes and in his commentaries and other places. For Calvin, I am united to the person of Christ in both of his natures. God and man. That Oziander guy that you didn't really hear much about, he was saying really we're only united to, to Christ in his deity and his deity is infused into us. Calvin said, no, 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 it's a union. It's a union that's spiritual. But Calvin insists we're not only united to Christ's deity, we're united to his humanity. I, body and soul, am united to him, body and soul. And that body and soul in a complete human nature that's joined to the divine nature. Lewis Smeads, a man with whom we don't always agree, said, Calvin is sure that union with Christ is a union with his whole self. And then he adds, after a little comma, especially his humanity. I don't know if I can say he's united especially with it. I would say it was equal, but I think he's saying that Calvin emphasizes the humanity more over against the repeated error of Oziander. So when we say Christ is made ours or Christ is made mine, the theme taken from Calvin for this speech, we're saying Christ is made mine, all of him is united to all of me, even though currently I am a sinner. And then Calvin goes further, following scripture, but drawing it out. We are united to Christ, Calvin teaches, in his threefold office, prophet, priest, and king. All his prophetic work, priestly work, kingly work, I'm united to him in that. We are united to Jesus Christ in both of his two states. His state of humiliation, when he was reckoned guilty for our sake and God treated him like that, involving his lowly birth, his life of suffering, his sacrificial death and his burial, we're united to Christ in all these stages. We, body and soul, united to him, body and soul, in his offices. And we're just as united to Christ in his state of exaltation, his bodily resurrection, his glorious ascension, his powerful session, and his second coming. And therefore, we're united to Christ with everything that he has earned in that threefold office and in those two states. Let's put this in terms of numbers. So it flows and we can get it clear in our minds. Since Christ is made ours, we're united to him in his one person, in his two natures, in his three, his two states, in his three offices. We're united to him in all of his redemptive acts and in all his blessings and benefits. And you say, well, that sort of covers everything. And that's the point. We're what is it that we're not united to him? That, that, in a sense, would get the point across even more quickly. 
Now time does not permit me to unfold union with Christ in terms of all these blessings and benefits of which Calvin speaks so frequently. So I will, I will summarize. I could have quoted page after page, and it would be lovely but inappropriate for a lecture. Let's move to soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. Soteriology for Calvin is union. I quote, Calvin wants us to conceive of salvation as union with Christ. You can ask me later where that quote came from. Not only does union with Christ unite us and Christ, but Calvin uses the truth of union with Christ to unite elements in soteriology that some people, he's thinking especially of the Church of Rome, make disparate and try and play off against each other to the detriment of the gospel. Calvin says that justification and sanctification are united in Christ. The complete legal blessing of justification were reckoned righteous in God's sight, and then the progressive organic work of sanctification, which seemed different, they're both united in Jesus and given to us by the Holy Spirit and through faith. And following scripture, Calvin can do no other than to teach repeatedly that all the other elements of the Ordo Salutis, there is an Ordo Salutis, or the order of salvation, are definitely in Christ. We're regenerated in Christ, called in Christ, adopted in Christ, and we only ever persevere because we're preserved as those who are in Jesus. And if we go from soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, to ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, Calvin doesn't say, oh, we're into book four here, we leave all that behind. He's still on union with Christ. For John Calvin, not only is the believer body and soul united to Christ, body, soul, and divinity, and everything in him and all his work, but for Calvin, the believer's union with Christ necessarily includes and can't even really be understood apart from his union, the believer's union, with Christ's body, the church. Calvin stated it so emphatically, perhaps more than anyone else in the history of Christendom, that no one ought ever claim, I'm in Christ, but I have little or nothing to do with the instituted church. That for Calvin would have been completely nonsensical. That, that, that's foolish talk. If you're united to Christ, you're part of his body, you're part of his body, the church. If you're a member of Jesus, you are a member, by definition, of the church as an organism, a living spiritual body. And therefore, you must be a member, not only in the church organic now, but flowing from that, you must also be a member of the church institute, an organized church with office bearers and sacraments. And by that, of course, he means a faithful church institute with the right preaching of the gospel, administration of the sacraments and church discipline. So a John Calvin, more faithfully than anyone in the first 1,500, 1,600 years of the church and possibly will ever be, 
issues the call. You've got to join a church. Incredibly strong in this. Our bookstall has run out of copies. We can't get any more of John Calvin's book on the necessity of joining the church against the, the Nicodemites. And that would have been the third book that Brian waved before you earlier, but we can't get new copies of it now. It's out of print. Calvin is also emphatic that the ministry of the preaching of the word is designed and results in the strengthening and deepening of our union with Christ. That's what it's about. The reading, preaching, singing of sacred scripture is to deepen our union with the Lord Jesus. The sacraments, Professor Engelsma referred to this, the sacraments are also means of grace, and one could restate that, the sacraments are means of grace, that means the sacraments are means of growing into Jesus Christ more and more. And I could multiply quotations to that effect. Here's one regarding baptism. Quote, All the gifts of God proffered in baptism are found in Christ alone. And when Calvin turns to deal with the Lord's Supper, he invariably says that Ephesians 5 verse 30 is key. We must think of this eating and drinking Christ spiritually in the Lord's Supper as a spiritually as spiritually are becoming more and more one with him so that we are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bones. And in the creeds of the Reformation, in the creeds of the Reformation, two of his disciples, Olivianus and Ursinus, when they came to explain the Lord's Supper, what is it then to eat the crucified body and drink the shed blood of Christ? I quote the latter part. It is to become more and more united to his sacred body by the Holy Ghost, who dwells both in Christ and in us, so that we, though Christ is in heaven and we on earth, are notwithstanding flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. They were passing on what they'd been taught from their theological teacher from the scriptures. So that we live and are governed forever by one spirit as members of the same body are by one soul. And if we move from soteriology, salvation, and ecclesiology, the church, to eschatology, Calvin is still talking about union with Christ and how this means blessedness and peace for us. The intermediate state, where we go between this present life and the eternal state of heaven, we depart to be with Christ in our, in our souls. Calvin's argument against the Anabaptists who believed in soul sleep, that believers are unconscious between their death and the return of Jesus. Calvin said that could never be, that could never be, because the believer, I mean, he, he quoted scripture too, but he said the believer is united to Jesus Christ. So there's no way he can be unconscious for a few years or centuries. He's united to Christ. He has fellowship with Christ. And God isn't going to just stop that and then turn on the fellowship 
when the Lord returns. With regard to the bodily resurrection, the dead saint is dead in Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 16, as we heard yesterday. And when we come to the new heavens and the new earth, which will be amazing, far better than anything we saw today, we're going to know 1,000 times more what it means that Christ has made ours and you're going to come to me and say, Pastor, you should, you should have preached that far, far better. You, you did your best, I know. But you can't do justice to it. Let's go further. Let's think about the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. Since Jesus Christ is made ours, and he is the mediator between the triune God and us, we're united to him, then we are united to the blessed Trinity. Calvin's explicit on that too. And therefore we're dealing with fellowship and communion with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit through the Son to whom we're united. We're in Christ, therefore we're in God. Christ is made ours, and so is the blessed Trinity. Christ is made ours, and therefore the new heavens and the new earth is too. We're joined, inseparably joined, to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in body and in soul, in this life and in the next. Everything is united. Ephesians 1 says that God is going to sum up all things in Christ. Now we've covered a lot of ground. Summary statement. We had an earlier summary statement. On Calvin, on union with Christ. What it is, what it isn't. It's not a physical union and God pouring his essence into it. The agent is the Holy Spirit. The means is faith. What's joined together? Us. We. Anthropology. We're joined to Christ. Christology and so to the Trinity. Theology, the doctrine of God. The benefits and blessings of this union, they're in the realms of soteriology, salvation, ecclesiology, the church, eschatology, the last things. And we actually could have said, as I indicated, there are an awful lot more, but what Calvin says, it means that Christ is made ours. And yet, after saying all this, both in this speech, and now Calvin, because we want to give his thinking, he would say there are unplumbable depths. Listening to this lecture, participating in this conference, reading scripture, including reading scripture with fresh eyes, and looking for this phrase, and developing this truth in our own hearts and minds, reading Calvin, and other books on union with Christ, we go all the way back, or most of the way back, to our opening section, and re return to two of the adjectives used earlier to describe union with Christ by Calvin, the two being mysterious, incomprehensible. And the phrase, one of the many phrases or nouns cited earlier, the famous phrase, a mystical union. And this, this is my last quote, and with this we end. This is how Calvin puts it in his commentary on Ephesians 5, verse 32, dealing with the incomprehensibility of union with Christ. It's this long quote, and then he refers to different parties. Number one, 
the apostle. Quote, even Paul expresses his astonishment at the spiritual union between Christ and the church, for no language can fully explain what it implies. And then he turns to unbelievers. Quote, it is to no purpose that men fret themselves to comprehend by the judgment of the flesh the manner and character of this union. For here the infinite power of the divine spirit is exerted. Those who refuse to admit anything on this subject beyond what their own capacity can reach act an exceeding foolish part. This is what Paul thinks of it. This is what the unbelievers think about. Then Calvin tells us what he thinks about it. Quote, For my own part, I am overwhelmed by the depth of this mystery. And I'm not ashamed to join Paul in acknowledging at once my ignorance and my admiration. How much more satisfactory would this be than to follow my carnal judgment in undervaluing what Paul declares to be a deep mystery? And then he concludes with an exhortation to all believers, seeing what Paul thought, unbelievers, where they go wrong, and what Calvin himself says. He concludes, Reason itself teaches how we ought to act in such matters. For whatever is supernatural is clearly beyond our own comprehension. Let us therefore labor more to feel Christ living in us let us labor more to feel Christ living in us than to discover the nature of that intercourse. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode. We will feature more speeches from the 2022 British Reform Fellowship Conference in upcoming weeks. Please send any feedback or questions you may have to hope rwc at gmail.com and we will respond promptly.